0: Hello and welcome to Cooper and Company where politics meets people. We are so excited that you have taken the time out of your busy schedule to join us. The mission of this podcast is to engage, inspire, educate, and entertain. I hope the conversations that I have with today's trailblazers in education, business, politics, international policy, and more inspire you to do more with the resources and the platform that you have. That being said, today's episode is brought to you by Kiana Clothing of California. The company has been such a huge supporter of my career in the arts and in politics. I've worn many of their dresses for different photo shoots and singing engagements and interviews with dignitaries. And you can visit Kiana Clothing at www.kiana, K-I-Y-O-N-N-A.com to check out their amazing styles. By the way, I want to say thank you to our associate producer, Cindy Lynn, for assisting me in this whole podcast production. So today's show, I thought it would be interesting to have this conversation about the importance of international relations between countries during a pandemic or during a crisis. In this case, we're talking about COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected international relations between countries, and it has caused diplomatic tensions around trade, transport of medicines, diagnostic tests, and hospital equipment for coronavirus disease. Leaders of some countries have accused other countries of not containing the disease effectively, um, resulting in the uncontrolled spread of the virus. As the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the political systems of multiple countries, causing suspensions of legislative activities, isolation or deaths of multiple politicians, rescheduling of elections due to fears of the spread of the virus, I decided it was time to have a really in depth conversation with people who are on the front lines and have experience in international relations between countries. And today's guest, we've invited Mr. Theo Neely, Bahamas Consul General to Washington, D.C., to our podcast today. Thank you so much, Mr. Neely, for being with us today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Bridget. I'm delighted to join you, Miss Cooper, and to be a part of your show today.
0: Thank you. Tell us a little bit, where did you attend college?
1: I attended college at a Christian liberal arts school in Palm Beach called Palm Beach Atlantic University. That's been a while back. I graduated almost 20 years ago, but uh, wonderful experience. And I'm still very much a proud sailfish. That was our symbol. So I'm certainly um, still connected to the university. I very much keep in touch with the current president of the university and the board of trustees and associates there.
0: Tell us what made you decide to attend college in the United States? Well, one of
1: the reasons is, you know, I'm from a small town in Luther called Current, about 95 people. And you would recall that there's no universities in the Bahamas other than, at the time, other than the one in Nassau or the College of Bahamas. So when we started looking at universities, one of the keys, I wanted to be close to home. So West Palm Beach was not too far from Bahamas. I wanted to be a small university as well with 3,500 students. So that fit the mold. And also Palm Beach Atlantic is a community, it's a university that gives back. So part of, before you can graduate, part of the requirement is you have to do so many hours of community service per semester, as well as workshop, and it's a, a Christian university as well. So I was, I was driven by faith as well as giving back and being a part of it. And so that's why we narrowed in and chose Palm Beach Atlantic University.
0: Well, what was your major?
1: My major? Undergrad biology and political science. So quite different. I had always interest in politics and history and sometimes you don't have to go to university to get into politics. So the fact was the other part of it, I was interested in the environment and wanted to uh, look at areas there. So I studied biology and and also uh, majored in both biology and political science.
0: What catapulted your your commitment to going into politics? Was it something early on in your life that that really caught your interest about politics in general?
1: Yeah, uh, what I'd say is it's actually, to answer that question, it's not so much that I was driven to get into politics, but more of the desire and, and drive to give back and community service. So I grew up in a family that always uh, participated in the community, always uh, was out there doing community service work for many generations. So for me, it was certainly um, not so much that I wanted to get into politics. It was quite the opposite. Politics didn't excite me, but building my community, being a part of my community, and developing and building that community, and and just serving and being a servant leader. When I was in university, I served as Palm Beach Atlantic student government president as well. But once I got out of university I started local government in two thousand and five and served there for seven years. It was a tremendous experience and and a wonderful opportunity to serve the community community directly. So not the drive not to get not to really enter politics, in fact desire to help and build and, and serve and give back.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've also completed your studies um, leading to the award of a master's degree in business administration from the University of Liverpool in the United Kingdom. I wanted to know, has your ability to study abroad in two different countries, um, how has this experience influenced your career path?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, with my master's degree, uh, the MBA, I did it online. And so I can relate to the students today and the challenges they face with COVID, uh, one of the things I had to balance my life and be very careful with that and, and focus as well, I was the airport manager. I was also chief counselor in a local government, and also at the time, certainly um, running for office and planning and looking at running for office actively. So lots are going on. At the same time, I was studying for my MBA and, and taking classes online, and I only had to defend my thesis. So that's the only um, interaction I had.
0: When you talk about running for office, was that when you decided to uh, run for public?
1: Correct. Yeah, I ran for Parliament in 2012. I graduated with my degree, my master's just before that. So during the time period leading up to the election campaigning and being very active, I certainly was at the time, like I said, managing the airport, active and local government, and doing the masters online and campaigning uh, or starting the campaign to run for parliament as well.
0: Now, were you the youngest uh, person elected to parliament at the time?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I served as the youngest member of parliament, I think at age 33 at the time. Today, you know, Back then, that seemed maybe young. There were others who were younger than myself before. For example, uh, former prime ministers uh, Hubert Ingram in Pinland, they were all uh, elected at a younger age. Chivaldo Lang, for example, as well. But when you look at Parliament today, when I was elected at age 33, that seems old today. We've got three members of Parliament in the current session that were elected even younger than that.
0: How was that experience, being so young and part of Parliament?
1: I felt I was part of the process and uh, was respected. It wasn't any, I found no issues with my age or any obstacles in that case. I felt respected all around in Parliament, it was able to debate and have my point heard and, and represent the people of North Lutheran have their um, points heard as well. It was a wonderful experience, uh, certainly um, being that young, coming from a small community in a small town, to have that opportunity to to speak nationally and be a voice in debate in Parliament. But I certainly I didn't find any issues with my age, if that makes sense. I didn't see didn't sense anyone saying, well, you, maybe you don't have the experience or maybe you're too young to, I, I, they, I was allowed to debate and allow it. I found no obstacles in that regard. I certainly had the national platform and able to debate bills outside that affected areas outside of North of And The awareness of seeing holistically the, the entire country nationally made it a wonderful experience. But I think when I speak, you know, I don't really, particularly enjoy politics itself. And my desire to enter politics, I keep saying that was to serve and to give back and help develop my community. So I had that passion. And in local government, I was able to do that perhaps easier. I didn't have, I didn't run for a political party at the time, you know, local government, you don't have a party label or brand, even though people might obviously know your affiliations. But I was able to get things done. I didn't find it uh, any obstacles. Once I got in parliament, then you know it's, you know how politics is, and it's a national, uh, a national level, and uh, there'll be obstacles in achieving things. And particularly at the time I served in opposition, so I should make that very clear. And our parliamentary system, opposition members have the challenge in itself to get things done. And so I found that my drive, like I said, was to develop and build my community. I was able to do that firsthand in local government, opening libraries, community centers, parks, uh, and doing tremendous work that I wanted to do. I, I enjoyed that because I was there in my community, living in my community and making a difference. At the national level, I didn't find that I could be as effective. I was effective nationally speaking, debating, bringing issues or or speaking on one way or the other towards an issue and bringing it to attention, but not being able to do as much locally. And um, I entered politics not to be a member of parliament to just use that title, but to make a difference. And so I found it um, that I was more effective in a local level, if that
0: makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Some of our listeners might be curious about your specific job as Consul General. And can you describe what a typical workday is like for you?
1: And you know, that's what makes it exciting. A typical workday, there's no such thing, even before COVID, but search, certainly now today, uh, not a typical day, but we can have, uh, my job can be sometimes meeting with other diplomatic heads or other countries and discussing issues or challenges that we might have. Uh, lots of it are courtesy calls. And lots of it is the brand or putting the bahamas forward and trying to to deepen our relationships with countries other times i could be on the phone call with a prisoner a bahamian prisoner who's in the united states or we might be speaking to the state department talking about or ice about treaty transfers and deportations or it could be a bahamian in distress calling me on the phone who lost their passport or who had their passport or maybe their belongings stolen from them while they were here on vacation and now they don't have an ID we've had cases where persons would leave their handbag accidentally and don't have uh, funds or credit cards or passport and so we have to deal with those issues what makes it exciting is you don't know what any day will give. It's not really a a standard form. And other times I could be speaking to investors and talking about investing in the Bahamas and how to go about investing in the Bahamas. And so I could be approached and have uh, conversations on any given day with diplomatic heads. Behemoths in distress, or so prisoners, or investors, as well, or chambers of commerce.
0: What do you think is the most important core value or values that, that countries need to keep in mind when working together during a crisis such as this one?
1: Well, one of the things the Bahamas, we, one of the greatest advantages we have is proximity to the United States. That's one thing. And we speak English, which is another thing. Our currency, we use the US dollar. Those things help us, but as it relates to our relationship, we're seen as a peaceful country. We transition from political parties or from government to government. And so it's easier actually uh, working with the United States and and being able to have access and speak. When When we come to the table, they see us as a peaceful country and not one of conflict. We might have a difference of opinion every now and then that might be very small or minor, but it doesn't really interfere with our communication. Um,
0: how does the Bahamas stay in alignment with uh, some of the other countries in terms of policy response to a pandemic?
1: One of the one of the things that we'll be having is uh, having the communications uh, go forward. And as it relates to travel restrictions, that's been a, a big task. And mo- most of those decisions are made at the health, basically, for health concerns or health challenges. So there'll be travel restrictions, that's handled mostly through international associations in aviation called ICAO and IATA, which are international buddies, which countries sign on. They're the ones who really, we depend on a bit as well to make sure the information's there, whether the border's closed or what the requirements are for international commercial flights to enter the country. And it's our job as diplomats and representing and serving the country that we update Bahamians in the United States, as well as persons who contact our office uh, and want to travel to the Bahamas or want to get there for vacation, that they're made aware of the requirements for entry.
0: Your office has done a phenomenal job at keeping everyone abreast of uh, what's going on in the Bahamas. And I've been really impressed by that. Um, Here in the United States, we listen to the CDC. Um, What is the organization that Bahamian residents listen to or take their guidelines from?
1: They would be listening to the Ministry of Health. And so the Ministry of Health of the standard that puts out the information to the Bahamas, Bahamans in general, that would provide updates on what's happening with COVID-19, increase in cases, or or if there's certain curfews or lockdowns, that's handled primarily by Ministry of Health. The Prime Minister, we're a small country, so most of these updates are given directly from the Prime Minister himself as it relates to curfews and lockdowns. And he's been very active in uh, giving press releases and press conferences and keeping the country updated on what's happening and why certain decisions are having to be made, they're tough decisions. It's a very difficult time and tough decisions have to be made. Some of the decisions he has to make or the Ministry of Health is not always gonna be favorable and it's certainly not exciting, but we have to think of the best interests of the country and moving forward.
0: So what role does the embassy take in combating COVID-19 here in the United States in the Bahamas? How does the embassy itself play a role?
1: Well, we just, we're, like I said, our biggest t- job is to inform Bahamans so they're aware of what's happening at home. Lots of Bahamans end up getting stranded. You know, when the borders closed in March 28th, and it was closed for about three months, we had Bahamans in the United States that were stranded. Some of them here short uh, temporary visits, perhaps, or, or coming here for health care. And they found themselves, once the borders were closed, stuck here. So we had to make sure they were informed of how to get back home and when the borders would enter, would, would we reopened that they would be aware of what was happening and the steps by step. So we had to guide them so that they can prepare themselves. In some cases, we had to assist them in many different ways while they were stranded here in the United States until the borders open. Primarily our job is to make Bahamians aware of, that are here in the United States of what's happening at home, the requirements for entry, and also with visitors and persons traveling to the Bahamas to make them aware of what they should be doing and what's required of them. And so you'll see from our Facebook, our social media Instagram that we keep putting out the information and that's followed by many, many phone calls, lots of emails and persons wanting to know what's the newest update, when they can travel there, what do they have to do to be able to travel to the Bahamas. So we're basically, I guess you'd say the liaison or the source of communication or information flowing from the Bahamas to those here in the United States, whether it's Bahamian or foreign nationals that have interest in the Bahamas.
0: Do you think the pandemic ushers in a new sense of, of spirit and global cooperation, or do you think it's hardened international distrust among some countries?
1: Well, I've imagined there's some distrust, and and I think that's always the case. Um, but I think we realize together, I mean, the, when I speak to my colleagues from other countries, the council gen- generals or counselors from other countries, I we always end that phone call or that conversation. Well, be encouraged, stay focused. And it's it's the camaraderie of it that we're in this together. And in order for us to get through it, all of us have to do it together. The Bahamas, the United States, Canada, Europe, wherever, all of us have to get through this together. So it's a, I think we're building an optimistic spirit amongst ourselves and encouragement to to know that we have to get through together. If the Bahamas can't get through it, if the United States doesn't or, or Jamaica doesn't or Turks and Caicos doesn't. And so there's the understanding that we're more Entirely, basically determined to to get through together.
0: So, one of the things I've been doing over the past several months is um, I've been keeping an eye on the dashboard that is released. Is you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the um, Ministry of Health of the Bahamas that releases that dashboard and gives you a, a snapshot or infographic of um, the cases, death rate, um, or is it the Prime Minister? Office it's,
1: it's coming from Ministry of Health and they provide it's very straightforward that yeah the, the clip that they give you can gives you a good picture of what's happening in the country, what to expect, how the cases are going, how many persons are hospitalized, how many active cases, how many persons are recovered. And so people track that day to day to see how the numbers are doing.
0: And I really like it because, it, like you said, it's very clear, it's concise, it's straightforward. And um, I have made a, uh, just I've noted that the death rate um, from COVID-19 is very low in the Bahamas. I mean, of course, one death is one death too many. But at the same time, um, it was 11 for probably two months, even though the cases have increased. So what 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 can you attribute to the reason why your country has such a low death rate from the overall effect of COVID nineteen, but yet the cases rise? So I think today it was at fourteen, unfortunately, but there are over seven hundred or eight hundred new cases. So yes. what what do you think? What do you think that is, and what is it that other countries can take from what what the bahamas is doing to to kind of stabilize this whole um, pandemic well,
1: one of the things we have to put in perspective is the bahamas is a small population of less than four hundred thousand people so when you see a number like you said any death is a death too many so when you see a number it appears low and generally the the numbers are low as it relates to deaths. But we have to know and realize that we're in perspective that we're for a country of 400,000 people. I think certainly the hard decisions, like I mentioned earlier, that the prime minister had to make to lock down the country, to have curfews in place, allowed those counts to remain low. And recent times, once the borders opened, we've seen a surge in cases, not so much in deaths, thankfully, but cases. And that's why currently this lockdown and Grand Bahama that's been extended now until August 19 and the rest of the islands are on curfew. Um, and like I said, these are difficult decisions and it's difficult for persons to be on a lockdown and not have that freedom, but it's in the best interest of our country. And in order to keep those numbers down, we ha- these decisions have to be made. And so I think it was, you know, early on during the pandem- pandemic, the decisions that were made for the lockdowns, for the curfews, allowed the numbers to be low. In recent times, un- unfortunately and uh, there those numbers have increased. Hence the reason for the new lockdowns and curfews.
0: What do you think about other countries and um, just working with other countries regarding vaccines as well as PPE equipment. How do countries work together to make sure that each country has enough?
1: We're part of the CARICOM block, which gives us some more positioning there. Uh, But the larger countries are those who would have the steam behind this or would be able to make the decisions and move forward. And like I said earlier, I think because of our relationship with the United States, that's been a great relationship for a long time. And because of proximity to the United States, the Bahamas will not be left out. And certainly a small country, uh, when you think internationally, there's much, not much we can bring to the table as it relates to being a powerhouse, if that makes sense. Certainly we bring much to the table, but not in making the international decisions. But based on our relationships, the Bahamas will certainly be not, will not be left out.
0: So what do you think other countries can learn from the Bahamas about responding to a pandemic and as well as being a good neighbor to other countries? I mean, your response, the Bahamas' response, has been phenomenal. Like you said, you want to generate goodwill. But what do you think some of the some of the um, some of the lessons that other countries can learn um, coming from the Bahamas about you know how to be a good neighbor to other countries? What does the country do well? It does everything well, of course.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I'm proud Bahamian, so we have our challenges. But listen, we're going to get through this, and we're going to be better than we are today. be much better in the future and we're going to learn from this and actually be able to build a country that's even stronger we're resilient people so we will rebound but one of the things to notice you know if you you know the Bahamian culture and the Bahamian the Bahamian in general peaceful loving relaxed people um and so we get caught up in our own politics at home or perhaps our differences with our neighbor or whatever or just even friends when we're casually hanging out we have our conversations about junk and you what one group or the other you might pull for but in general, we're peaceful people. And so it's easier for us to be, to work along with other countries. And and even if there might be any differences, we realize the common good. We've been seen as a country that's been, where persons can come to and be at ease and be at peace and not not have any issues. And regardless of leadership over the years, like I said, since independence and before independence, we've had that relationship with the United States that we still keep building on. It might be some challenges. Certainly that, you know, depending on leadership or whatever, there might be a challenge here or there. But in the overall picture internationally, that challenge is very, very small. And they're only that's only a small disagreement. And so we realize that our big brothers our countries like the United States, big brother, big sister, and that we depend on our relationship and we love our relationship. It's, it's not always the best, like I said, but we're happy to have the relationship we do have with the United States.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Tell us um, how our listeners can support the Bahamas.
1: Well, what our listeners can do. I, I'm a proud Bahamian. We're still um, having challenges currently and having lockdowns and curfews. But after this is slowing down, it's going to slow down. I'm optimistic, I believe, within the next few months and the road ahead will be better. Persons can start planning that vacation because why not go to the Bahamas? Make sure you meet all the entry requirements once travel's eased again. Um, And go to some of those other islands. Like you said, there's 700 islands in the country. Most people think of Paradise Island or Nassau, but there's so many different islands out there that have so much to offer, different personalities, different people that have different interests. And just get out there and explore the country. Make sure that you're healthy. Make sure it's safe. Make sure you enter and meet the requirements to enter. But get to some of the smaller islands. Go fishing. Get to meet the locals. Experience the Bahamian culture and the peaceful, loving people that I've been speaking about all night which makes our relationships with the United States and other countries easier because of the way we handle our affairs and the way we see our neighbors. That's how we are at home. That's how those Bahamans are in all the islands. So get out there and get to meet them and experience the Bahamian charm. And the Bahamas is very unique. Each one of those islands are very different. So do some island hopping. You can certainly help us by supporting our economy and supporting yourself to have a wonderful, relaxing vacation in paradise. So hopefully once this starts slowing down, it's the perfect place direct flights from many of the cities in the United States. We speak English, we use the U.S. currency as well as the Bahamian currency. And so it can't be any better than that. It will be a perfect place to go and relax.
0: What a great note to conclude this conversation. Thank you again for being with us. I hope everyone enjoyed today's episode of Cooper & Company. Thank you again to our guest, Consul General Neely. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Your conversation has been very enlightening. And um, it's been wonderful to hear this perspective uh, regarding this topic. And if you'd like to contact our show, you can email us at Company at gmail.com. And a huge thank you again to our associate producer for the show, Cindy Lynn. Remember, don't wait for change. Be the change you wish to see in the world.